1: Welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to my very first podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in the emerging interdisciplinary field of Native American and Indigenous Studies, and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, we're excited to be joined by Bradley Shreve, chair of the Social and Behavioral Sciences Division of Diné College on the Navajo Nation. His new book, Red Power Rising: The National Indian Youth Council and the Origins of Native Activism is just out from the University of Oklahoma Press. When the Indians of all tribes seized Alcatraz Island in November 1969, it launched a new, highly visible and militant phase of American Indian activism in the United States to be followed over the next dramatic years by the takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the occupation of Wounded Knee. While for most white Americans, convinced of their own triumphalist myths of the disappearing or disappeared Indian, these actions came out of seemingly nowhere Bradley Shreve finds the origins of the Red Power movement in the nascent intertribal organizing going all the way back to the early 20th century. As he explores the fits and starts of young Native people forming an independent organization to create meaningful change both on and off reservations, we find a story of tremendous challenges and inspiring determination in the decades before Red Power exploded on the scene. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, Brad. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So uh, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Today we're discussing uh, your new book, Red Power Rising, the National Indian Youth Council and the Origins of Native Activism. It's just out from the University of Oklahoma Press. I found it to be a very exciting look into the Native student movement, which, uh, unlike many of the contemporary movements in the ferment of the 1960s, was really truly launched, organized, and sustained by young people themselves. But of course, one of the central themes of your book is to pull back from the often studied dramas of the 1960s and 70s and to find the roots of Native activism in the preceding decades, where few historians have looked. But before we get into all of that, I want to just first ask you, Brad, to, to tell us a little bit about
0: yourself. Well, I'm originally from Northeastern Ohio, a small town called Alliance. Um, and I did my undergraduate study at Kent State University, which, as you may know, has a long history of of student activism. Absolutely. Um, and most notoriously, the deaths of the four students who were killed on May fourth, nineteen seventy. Um, and then I um, I moved to after briefly studying anthropology at Ohio State. I attended Texas State, and um, wrote a thesis on um, African-American activism in Washington, D.C., and their efforts to uh, gain um, self-rule for, uh, for Washington, D.C. And from there, then I moved to the University of New Mexico, where I did my Ph.D. On, um, with a concentration on Native activism in the 20th century. Very cool. And where do you, where do you work now? I work at Diné College, which is the tribal college of the Navajo Nation. Very good, very good. So how did you, um, I guess that tells me a little bit about how you got interested in this topic, but
1: I'm more particularly interested um, in how you came to this discovery uh, of that of the predecessors of the Native uh, activism that's well known in the 1960s and 70s. You know, much of the common story seems to indicate that the Red Power activism that exploded at Alcatraz and later at Wounded Knee um, seemingly came out of nowhere. Um, but you say, you tell a different story, you say that the, the these episodes, Wounded Knee, the occupation of BIAA, and their main actors followed in the footsteps of an earlier generation. Tell us a bit about this and how you, how you came to that discovery.
0: Well, uh, being at the University of New Mexico, that's where a lot of these initial efforts began. Um, and so... Um, As I was doing my graduate study, um, the National Indian Youth Council donated their papers to the university, and the Center for Southwest Research processed the papers, and they became available to researchers just as I was beginning my uh, dissertation. And so I began looking at the papers, and I became very interested in these this early these early efforts at native in native activism, and that led me to go back even further where I discovered um, even earlier efforts with the regional Indian Youth Council at organizing native students in an effort to um, to prepare future leaders for what was at the time um, great concern. You know, with the um, policy of termination, and so, you know, many of the older native leaders in the National Congress of American Indians um, and American Indian uh, development were were very much concerned that um, that termination would leave tribes completely decimated, and so they wanted to prepare a new generation of student leaders, and so they initiated the regional Indian youth councils, and at the same time, the workshop on American Indian Affairs up in um, Colorado. And so a lot of these initial efforts unfolded in the in the Southwest, and uh, particularly in in New Mexico.
1: I see. But bringing us back a little bit, I, you know, I find it kind of interesting that... Um, one of the first places you start in terms of the predecessors to the National Indian Youth Council is, is in the early 20th century uh, with the Society of American Indians. Um, and I, I was curious about why you started there, especially because it would seem, at least on the face of it, that the Society of American Indians had very different goals than uh, some of these later organizations, you know, namely um, assimilation, citizenship. Why do you start your narrative here, and, and where do you, what do you see as the similarities?
0: Well, I start the narrative back in the early twentieth century because i want to discuss the i wanted to discuss the roots of of intertribal organization and um, you know as you mentioned, the goals were were very very different um, but um I think it's important to recognize that intertribal Organization began in, in the in the 20th century, and although the goals changed the, changed over time, these roots lay back in the um, in the 19 teens in the 1920s.
1: Yeah, and then we're actually we're coming up now, I think, on the hundredth uh, anniversary of the Society of American Indians, so it's a it's a good time to be discussing some of that. Um, but as we as we move up in the in the narrative, um, you discuss another very interesting predecessor in the American Indian Federation, which held its first meeting in Gallup, New Mexico, in 1934. Um, I was very curious about this organization in particular because some of the organization seemed somewhat contradictory, and I was fascinated at how it attracted some pretty far-right characters, even some people with outright fascist sympathies, Alice Jemison and Earl Towner, two characters you talk about a little bit. Tell us a little bit about this organization and some of these characters and how they fit into the
0: broader story you're telling here. Yeah, the American Indian Federation is a fascinating um, organization. Didn't it, it didn't survive very long? Um, it was created primarily as a reaction to um, the Indian New Deal and John Collier's policies as as Commissioner of Indian Affairs. And so, um, you know, it did attract these sort of right wing. Right-wing characters, Um, many of them, many of the founders and organizers of the American Indian Federation were from Oklahoma. Um, Some of them, such as um, uh, Earl Bruner, I believe is his name, um, was a wealthy beneficiary of the Dawes Act. Mm -hmm. And so he was allotted, the land that he was allotted, um, had many... was endowed with great natural resources and be so he became a fairly wealthy man and he was very concerned that the indian new deal would um would perhaps strip him of 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 his land and of his of his wealth and um so he was very concerned about that and i think that was one of the his motivations but you know there's been other studies about the American Indian Federation, and, and all of the major characters within that organization had their own agendas, mm-hmm. and so there isn't any sort of overarching, I guess, um, ideology uh, that you can place upon um, all of the members, other than the fact that they were, you know, vehemently opposed to the Indian New Deal. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and John Collier is a, a pretty fascinating character. He comes into the story a bit. And, and if you can tell us a little bit about John Collier and, and what his relationship was to sort of these these predecessors of, of the red power organizing you talk about in the 1960s and 70s. What, how did he impact these organizers in the earlier days?
0: Yeah, he was very um, influential, especially um, with the founding of the National Congress of American Indians um, and so many of the founders worked in the Bureau of Indian Affairs under John Collier and subscribed to the same basic overarching goals that john collier um, you know championed, and that's tribal sovereignty, treaty rights self determination, and cultural preservation mm. And um, so many of the founders of the the National Congress of American Indians, once Collier left the BIA, they were very worried about the future of Indian affairs and the direction of the BIA. And so that was one of the, you know, I guess, uh, you know, it was one of the impetuses for forming the uh, NCAI in 1944
1: you write about that as a um, as a, a transformational moment it was changed the nature of pan Indian politics. What do you think led to this shift um was it was it simply a fear of the termination period that was looming or, or what were some of the goals of the organization
0: and how did it emerge? yeah, I think it was you know they knew well they had a sense that termination was on the horizon i mean the you know termination act wasn't passed for several years later but Um, that was on the horizon. Um, The creation of the Indian Claims Commission was another uh, motivating um, force. And so, and I think it was, you know, also just this sense of the unknown with Collier leaving. I mean, because Collier's tenure as Commissioner of Indian Affairs was really um, exceptional when you put it in the larger scheme of things. I mean, you know, a lot of historians slam Collier all the time because, you know, he was, he could be somewhat heavy-handed and, um, you know, he had strong ideas about what federal Indian policy should be. And, you know, there's a great diversity in Indian country um, on those issues. But Collier had very strong ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think at the very core, he did believe in treaty rights, self-determination, cultural preservation, Tribal sovereignty, those were really the basic ideas that he believed in. And he s- certainly had some missteps, I think we can all agree on, especially with um, his policies regarding the Navajo Nation and livestock reduction. But um, overall, his policies, I think, um, at least you know Darcy McDickles and others in the NCAI strongly um, supported his policies. And saw them as overall very beneficial for for native people, and for for tribal sovereignty. And so, um, with Collier leaving the BIA, um, they were very worried about the future direction of Indian affairs. I mean, during his tenure as commissioner, there was a huge change in Indian policy. Before Collier came in, it the federal government pursued a policy of assimilation. Um, they were opposed to natives holding traditional ceremonies I mean pe- medicine men were being arrested on tribal lands at times for holding traditional ceremonies, practicing um, you know traditional medicine uh, those sorts of things. and so um, you know the NCAI founders recognized that Collier's tenure was in many ways an anomaly in Indian Affairs, and they recognized that they needed to join together and form a strong intertribal organization that would advocate for Native people and pursue uh, the same overarching ideas that John Collier had uh, championed as Commissioner of Indian Affairs.
1: When we get when we get into the 1950s, you know, once this organization is established, um, you preface your chapter in a pretty fascinating way. You say that historians have generally characterized the 1950s as a time of relative peace and consensus, and but you explode that myth not only by bringing in the global anti-colonial movements that are were going on, but also the activism in North America again with the NCAAI. And you write that American Indians also rode this wave of, of decolonization. Can you talk a little bit about that wave of decolonization and, and how that played into activism in the United States? Uh, I'm sorry, that. so wh- what was the question? The question is uh, putting uh, American Indian activism in the 1950s in the context you talk about, the, the wave of decolonization going on globally and, uh-huh. and where, that, where that fits in in the 1950s.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was, I think, if you look across the board, um, both internationally and domestically, there are these efforts for um, what some people would call sub subalterns seeking greater empowerment. And I think Native people within North America can certainly be placed within that larger context which was sweeping the globe. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously the roots of this lay in the Second World War and, um, you know, these sort of anti-imperial sentiments that came out of that war. And eventually they catch on. I mean, it catches on all over the globe. And um, in Indian country, it was no exception. Now, this, this book is uh, filled with a number of,
1: very fascinating characters, and we talked about a couple of them, um, but I want to talk in particularly about um, Clyde Warrior. I want you to perhaps introduce the listeners of the show to, to Clyde Warrior and his role in merging red power activism.
0: Uh, well, Clyde Warrior was, um, you know, in many ways the figurehead of the national, uh, national Indian Youth Council. He was instrumental in the creation of the council. And um he led the council for the last couple years of his life um I think uh you know, Warrior was a very charismatic. he was a charismatic leader, and I think that's what makes him really exceptional and also you know he and of course Mel Tom and Shirley O'Witt and some of the other founders were first really to articulate um native concerns. In a militant, some would say, aggressive way, which is what I think is defines red power. And um, yeah, I'm sorry, you have a question. Well, no, I was just gonna. Um, you know, one of the things you talk about a lot is the
1: um, a sort of uh, skepticism or I would say a reluctance of some of the older generation to engage in that kind of rhetoric and tactics. I remember this the banner you mentioned it sometimes from the NCAI: Indians don't demonstrate. Um you know they were pushing against that a little bit. And then you know, what was the reaction of that older generation?
0: Well, the older generation was some would say you know, concerned, others would say alarmed. Um and um but I think there's some evidence to suggest that McNichol and some of the NCAI leaders Um, really were, you know, instrumental in fostering and uh, developing this kind of newfound militancy amongst the youth. Um, You know, it's debatable about how perhaps intentional it was, but, um, I mean, you know, McNichol was... You know, one of the organizers, early organizers of, um, of the workshop on American Indian Affairs, which, you know, is really sort of the ideological birthplace of, of red power. And so it was these elders um, within an older generation that really kind of um, developed this new sense of militancy within uh, the youth.
1: I was interested, you know, about the workshop on American Indians, and I know we're bringing it a little bit back from the, the Youth Council. I was pretty surprised, actually, at the involvement, the the positive involvement of anthropologists at that, you know, particularly soul tax and his action anthropology. Anthropologists, of course, they call to mind a particularly fraught relationship with indigenous people in North America, a very disempowering, often colonialist relationship that Vine Deloria has criticized and is, and is there, but this seems very different with soul tax and his um, action anthropology. And you talk a little bit about the role there, the changing role of academics in that movement.
0: Yeah. You yeah. um, know, you know, soul tax is a very fascinating character and um, you know, you're going to get different opinions, I guess, on, on his role within the workshop. Um, I mean, the workshop on American Indian affairs was an action anthropology and in, in, endeavor when it was, when it was established, uh, empowering native people to basically assume control of, of the issues and, and make change on their own. And so that was the uh, sort of goal of the action anthropologists, and Soul Tax had many other sort of action anthropology projects before this. Um, but at the same time, you know, there was this sort of um, paternalistic, um, I don't know, you know, Soul Tax was in many ways very paternalistic in the way he went about the whole thing. Um, he had very set ideas on what he wanted to accomplish. And although Action Anthropology said that Native people will determine for themselves what they're going to do, um, he was, you know, he had certain ideas that he was very much trying to, uh, some would say, impose upon uh, the Native students at the workshops. I mean, the people he hired all were, you know, in agreement on these same general principles. Um about you know tribal sovereignty, treaty rights, self determination, cultural preservation. Um, basically, they were in line with what John Collier was advocating as commissioner on Indian affairs. And today, we just take these these principles for granted. But but back then, I mean, there were many Native students and students who attended the workshops who didn't necessarily agree with those basic principles. Some people were Mormons. Some people um, believed in some degree of assimilation. Um, so, you know, but Tax was 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 very, um, you know, set in his in his ways and his ideas. And I think he was, um, you know, if you look at the curriculum and the workshops, I mean, it very much comes out with in the curriculum. And you talk about in the National Indian Youth
1: Council, um, one of the most significant things they did was break free of that kind of uh, white paternalism or or white leadership. How important was that, um, the independence uh, from people like tax and even pushing it back, people like Collier, in articulating a different agenda and, and developing different tactics?
0: Well, I think it was, I mean, it was key and it was, you know, um, very important that that happened and it needed to happen when the National um, Indian Youth Council was established in 1961 that really marks the beginning of I think well not just the Red Power movement of, but of you know, young people assuming control of their own destiny and determining for themselves what they're going to their agenda, they're going to pursue, and the way they're going to pursue it.
1: You you place um, you place the National Indian Youth Council alongside some of its um, contemporary movements, both in the Black Civil Rights struggle as well as as the White Left, and, and you you create this context for. it, But you also point out some key differences, and one of them you just mentioned was the how how much youth had control and and agency in in creating this organization in the first place, but but what are some of the other differences you see in in these different civil rights struggles that were going on at the same time uh, between those and um, the Native youth
0: movement? I think one of the most crucial differences is that the students who founded the National Indian Youth Council adhered to the same general goals Uh, and ideals as their elders. And so if you look at what N.I.Y.C. activists um, propagated, it falls in line with almost exactly with what the N.C.A.I. believed leaders within the N.C.A.I. They believed in those cornerstone principles um, of tribal sovereignty, treaty rights, cultural preservation, self-determination, Territorial integrity. They believed in those general principles. And so they never deviated from the ideals of their elders. In fact, they were always very adamant that they would respect their elders and uphold the principles of their elders. Now, the, the students within the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or uh, Students for Democratic Society, I think, were a little bit different. Um, If you look at the history of SNCC, uh, SNCC began um, basically on the same ideological page as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or the NAACP. But over time, they transformed, and they transformed into um, a black power front. Um, when Stokely Carmichael assumed control of the organization in 1966, you see this this distinct shift in what SNCC began advocating, and of course it even you know becomes more exasperated when H. Rap Brown assumed control of the organization in, in I believe 1968, and um, and so they began in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee they began advocating um, not for integration, but for separation. And they wanted to have their own communities in control of their own community resources. And so in this way, they went against the ideals of of their elders. And I think that's what makes, I think that's why you can call uh, SNCC of the late 1960s, a radical organization, whereas I don't think you can use the term radical to describe the National Indian Youth Council. You can use the term militant, but I wouldn't use the term radical because they never deviated from those basic principles uh, of their elders.
1: One of the other the differences that you point out uh, quite persuasively is the role of women. Um, and the 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 differences between these two movements and, and women's leadership and women's involvement can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, um, you know I, I, this really came out especially when I began interviewing people um, for between when I was turning my dissertation into the book. Um, I began interviewing several of the women in the organization, of course, I wanted to ask them about. Sexism within the National Indian Youth Council because I knew that was a serious problem in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and SDS, and um, and time after time the women I spoke to said they never experienced sexism that there was no sexism within the National Indian Youth Council. Now, you know I'm sure there's probably people listening to this now and who are saying, "Oh yeah, right." Well, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there, but I, we can talk to the women who were there, and I couldn't find one woman um, who said that sexism was an issue within the National Indian Youth Council. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I know it was an issue within AIM and some of the later Native organizations, um, but within the National Indian Youth Council, it didn't seem to be an issue. at least the women within the organization said that it didn't didn't say that it was. So, and why this is um, strong matrilineal traditions within many of the tribes. Um, there was a tradition of, of leadership with women within other intertribal, organizations including the ncai society of american indians even and so um you know it's hard to say exactly why but those are just some some possibilities
1: that's fascinating and quite uh quite divergent as you say from some of the issues that were present in in other sections of the the civil rights or or left movements um Uh But, you know, talking a little bit about some of the language that was deployed in these in these movements, you have a, a very powerful quote that titles one of your chapters, one of your earlier chapters then on the uh, Youth Council that says, nationalism is a journey, a journey from fear into hope. Now, you know, nationalism is a term that's been deployed in many different ways throughout history. How is it used particularly in this movement? What did nationalism mean um, to these Native activists in the period?
0: Well, I think when, uh, when they were Using that term in that context, I think um, what, you know, what they're referring to is that is intertribalism, essentially, is for Native people to begin viewing their struggle as one group of people. I mean, there's always been historically so much divisiveness between tribes And um, that was recognized by many of the founders of these um, early organizations. And so, you know, people wanted to get beyond that. They wanted Native people to recognize that it didn't matter which tribe someone was from, that there were certain um, problems. There were certain issues confronting all Native people. And so um, I think that's really um what you know when people were f- use that term nationalism back in the in the 1960s early 1960s late 50s that's what they were referring to hold on one second. that sure okay sorry
1: about that no problem no problem um this is on a slightly less serious though though in, in a nonetheless important note i i can't help but asking about uh, Marlon Brando, who keeps popping up here. I, you know, I, I am familiar, obviously, with um, the famous uh, Oscar when he won the Academy Award and, and he refused to accept it and sent a delegate in, in his place. But he seemed actually quite involved in um, some of the fishing movements and he was present there. And I know he wasn't the most important player, but I feel like I need to ask about his role in all of this. It's kind of fascinating.
0: Yeah, he was um, very interested in... Native affairs, he's also interested in in African American civil rights. And um, he attended the um, National Indian Youth Council's annual meeting in 1963, uh, which was held at Fort Duquesne. And um, so he attended the meeting and became very, very interested in what the National Indian Youth Council was doing and he kept a steady correspondence between some of the leaders of niyc Uh, when they decided that they would launch the fissions in um early 1964 late 1963 early 1964 they informed marlon brando about this and he was very interested in doing what he could do to help out and so he went up there to um to Washington State, where they were going to hold these fishings in the New Squally and Puyallup Rivers. And Brando, you know, this is part of the savvy of the early leaders, Mel Tom, Clyde Warrior, Shirley Hill Witt, Joe Noble, and others, is they they recognized that you know Brando could bring a great deal of media attention to their to their efforts. And so they they bring Brando in. Um, he's out there on the boat when they begin casting their nets into to the rivers and fishing, um, what the state game warden would say, illegally. And so he was arrested, booked, and, you know, the media was there covering the entire thing. And they gained a great deal of exposure because of this. And Hunter S.
1: Thompson actually shows up at one point two, which I
0: thought, oh yeah uh, yeah Hunter S. Thompson was yeah. there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, now I, I'm going to leave a, a lot of the the drama of the the fissions uh, the civil disobedience to the readers. I think you know that section alone is a fascinating read. But in the context of this entire narrative, it's even more even more so. Um, but you know, in the wake of the Fission movements, you talk about the growing uh, red power of militancy. Um, But at times it seemed uh, sometimes uneven, uh, given the tactical disputes within the National Indian Youth Council. How did this militancy grow in the period uh, following the fissions?
0: Well, unevenly, as you as you suggest, Um, I think in some ways the N.I.Y.C. suffered an identity crisis following the Fissions. I mean, the Fissions brought the organization a tremendous amount of, of media exposure and success. Um, but, you know, there was this sort of identity crisis within the organization. How how were they going to develop? What was the organization going to become? I mean, they, this was uncharted territory, remember, in 1964. And there was no native um, activist organization that used to direct action as its primary means to uh, accomplish its goals. And so the National Indian Youth Council um, sought to, you know, went into this open new territory and was attempting to, you know, create some kind of identity for itself. And many within the organization were, were more conservative and cautious. They wanted to perhaps emulate... The NCAI, Um, they saw themselves as sort of the junior edition of the NCAI. And so they wanted to, you know, take a more cautious approach, have more conservative goals, perhaps not rock the boat too much. Others within the organization wanted to replicate the success of the Fissions and act more aggressively and employ direct action. And protest uh, openly. And so there was this kind of struggle within the organization. And, and of course, this, this eventually leads to um, you know, the decline of the first, um, uh, the founders of the NIYC in, in 1968. But um, it was an ongoing kind of struggle. That lasted uh, several years following the visions.
1: And what was the relationship in all of this with um, with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs? It seemed like that was one site of the potential, uh, well, the contestation over where the organization was going. Both being a, a respectable educational agency and, as you call, a militant red power front. How did Lyndon Johnson's uh, programs, Great Society programs, play into all of this?
0: Well, they opened up doors. Um, for new resources that people could tap into uh, for perhaps experimental educational endeavors. Um, Some within the NIYC thought that if they could um, educate future generations, that they could bring about, you know, deep and lasting change this way. Um, But others, you know, were much more... uh, wary of, of Johnson's uh, programs and uh, were concerned that the government would just simply co-opt everything that they were trying to do. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of trust of the American government, and rightfully so, amongst many Native leaders. And so um, some were very wary of, of, of the new sources of funding that OEO and others presented, Um, so yeah, there was, um, and I think that's lends itself to this whole identity crisis. I mean, the the more conservative, um, members within the organization wanted to take advantage of Johnson's programs and make change that way, following a much more conservative, um, policy driven, um, path. Others wanted to just simply break that, break through all of that, um, And, you know, act as more of a militant front and challenge what the government perhaps was trying to do.
1: And how did the organization change? I mean, one of the things you point out is that it was one of the most sustainable organizations of the um, 60s ferment, 60s activism. And, and one, of that, one of the reasons for that seems to be the the leadership of Gerald Wilkinson in the 70s and the 80s. And how did, how did his directorship and how did the, the N.I.Y.C. change in in those periods?
0: Well, as I alluded earlier, um, during 1968, there was this major upheaval within the organization. And so the founding members, Shirley O. Witt, Mel Tom, Clyde Warrior had passed away by this time. But Shirley Hill Witt, Mill Tom, Herb Blatchford, and others uh, were more or less uh, ousted from the NIYC um, during the 1968 annual meeting in Gallup, New Mexico. And so, um, following this ouster, then the NIYC began to regroup. Uh, The organization was in deep financial difficulty. And so they brought in... uh, Browning Pipestem really was kind of the initiator of all this. He was a friend of Clyde Warriors during the workshop on American Indian Affairs and uh, remained, of course, a good friend of Clyde Warriors until his death. But Pipestem then began uh, searching for a new executive director, somebody who would come in and bring stability to the NIYC. I mean... (laughs) Had the N.I.Y.C. followed the trajectory of SNCC or SDS, it would have dissolved in 1968. But Pipestem and others were determined to um, to to save the N.I.Y.C. And when they brought in Gerald Wilkinson um, in 1969 as the new executive director Uh, Wilkinson came in and reorganized the council, brought in financial stability, cut perhaps some programs that were um, unfeasible, and initiated new ones. He, um, in some ways, changed the direction of the NIYC and changed the organization in the long run but the organization never deviated from its basic cornerstone principles that it had advocated since it was founded. So, um, you know, through the 1970s, um, the NIYC um, had its own legal wing, which went out and um, advocated, advocated in the courts and litigated certain cases. Um, it also developed a job agency for people relocating to cities within New Mexico. In some ways it became a much more regional organization rather than a national one. But it also continued to employ protest tactics throughout the 1970s.
1: So far as you know, was it was it ever subject to the type of or or even to some small degree of the counterintelligence operations that the federal government, and in particular the FBI, waged against um, the American Indian movement. Um, I guess which, uh, the second question to that would be, was what was its relationship to the American Indian movement in the 1970s?
0: Well, I think the FBI was, was keeping tabs on NIYC, but they never really saw it, perhaps, um, as a threat, certainly not on the level that they viewed aim. Um, and... Yeah, there was this kind of interesting relationship between the American Indian Movement and NIYC uh, shortly after AIM was founded in 1968. And um, the two organizations worked um, together on many issues. They held mutual protests uh, throughout Indian country um, during the late 60s and early 1970s. NIYC leaders were present when AIM took over the BIA building in 1972. Uh, But I think that was a pivotal moment that really um, kind of broke that alliance between the organization. As you know, AIM leaders would go on, um, or I should say AIM activists would go on to basically tear the BIA building apart uh, after the takeover in 1972. I mean, they just destroyed uh, the inside of the building. They burned files. They took files and um, really just left the, the building um, a disaster. And NYC leaders perhaps could sympathize with some of the anger and resentment that, um, that aim activists had towards the BIA. But you know, this was, a, This was, as some early leaders said, this is the intellectual elite of the activist, native activist movement during the early 70s, late 60s. And they recognized that by going in and taking these files and destroying all these files, basically they were destroying many tribes' claims um, that that they had for lands lost and resources taken. And so um NYC leaders saw this as just kind of um just going way over the top and ultimately destructive so um they broke the alliance between the two organizations and it was a very cold relationship uh, thereafter i mean i remember talking with some of the with some of the um, NYC um, activists Um, In the early 70s, and um, I can remember one in particular telling me that sometimes AIM members would come by the NIYC office after the BIA takeover, and they would attempt to, as he put it, shake down NIYC for money or whatever. Um, And, you know, whenever the NIYC would see them coming, right, they would... you know they would get greatly concerned because they knew that this was. They thought for sure that AIM would come in and, you know, attempt to bully them. And so uh, there was a very cold kind of relationship after that uh, BIA takeover.
1: Was there were uh, activists from the NIYC involved at all at, at Wounded Knee in 1973, or did the, the cold relationship that developed after the BIA uh, prevent
0: or or stymie the the possibility of their involvement there? you know there may have been some niyc members who were at wounded knee but the organization itself was not um you know in any way um organizing or orchestrating that that takeover at wounded knee mm. i want to just
1: um, as we get close to the end here i want to bring us up um, into the more contemporary period um, and talk about if you see any of the enthusiasm and the activism of the N.I.Y.C. uh, present today in any contemporary manifestations Um, and maybe also touch a little bit on the legacy of the N.I.Y.C.
0: Well, um, you know, I think the 1960s and 70s were unique in the sense that it was a time when people were highly politicized. Um, there was a great deal of political activism across the board, and you don't really see that at the same level um, today. Um, I think the NIYC's legacy um, is still very prevalent in the fact that what they were advocating, what they were really pressing for, uh, the general principles of of treaty rights, tribal sovereignty, self-determination, cultural preservation, territorial integrity, that these basic ideals have become the status quo within Indian country. I mean, you would be hard-pressed to find any leader within the Native community who didn't advocate for those principles um, on some level. And so I think that that's, um, that's really the lasting legacy of the N.I.Y.C. and other organizations, N.C.A.I. and others from the time period, is they really kind of changed the entire discourse and the political parameters of intertribal um, uh, politics.
1: Well, we've been talking to um, Dr. Bradley Shreve. His, his new book is Red Power Rising from the University of Oklahoma Press. And we've taken up a lot of your time today, so I'll just ask you as a final question, what are you working on now? Where do you see yourself uh, uh, working on next?
0: Well, I'm currently serving as chair of the Social Behavioral Sciences Division at Danae College. So I'm, um, you know, my time is occupied greatly with with issues concerning the college. And I'm actually working on a, um, a policy paper. We're attempting to develop a four-year program um, in social work in social behavioral sciences. And so I'm uh, developing a policy paper on how that program would work, and I'm actually going to be presenting it at the National Congress of American Indians meeting here uh, within a few weeks. Sounds phenomenal. We hope hope our listeners
1: follow up on that, and um, maybe we can check back with you in the future about that. well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Shreve. We appreciate it very much, and I, I once again highly encourage uh, listeners to pick up a copy of Red Power Rising. It's a it's a fascinating, in many ways, inspirational a tale. It's an important story that needs to be told. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Shreve.
0: All right, thank you.
1: You've been listening to New Books in Native American Studies. We've been speaking with Bradley Shreve, author of Red Power Rising the National Indian Youth Council, and the Origins of Native Activism out from the University of Oklahoma Press. You can find us here on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com or track us down on our Facebook page where you can leave questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. I'm Andrew Epstein, and we hope you join us again.